Um, thank you very much and um, welcome to the ANU and the Development Policy Center. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be back here again um, after a period of time away. Um, the annual aid budget is um, a bit of the highlight of the year um, in the aid sector. Um, and last night, the, the Treasurer announced this year's aid budget. Um, of course, last year we had um, the issue being the government's target of 0.5% being pushed back. Um, this year, the government has stuck to the path it announced last year of 0.37% of GNI, um, implying an increase in aid of about 500 million. Um, that path has sparked a, a fairly lively discussion and debate um, with people on different sides of the fence thinking whether this is the glass is half full or half empty. Um, we're very fortunate today to have a very distinguished panel of speakers um, to help us to understand the aid budget um, and to frame hopefully what will be a, a lively discussion in the Q&A session around the, the aid budget. So I'll introduce our speakers and then invite them to, to sit at the front here. Um, our first speaker is Anthony Swan, um, who is a research fellow at the Development Policy Centre. He'll speak for about 10 minutes. We then have Stephen Howes, who's the director of the Development Policy Centre. He'll speak for about 30 minutes. Um, I'd like to welcome Helen Zoki, who's the Chief Executive Officer of Oxfam. Um, she'll give some remarks, as well as Angus Barnes, who's an independent consultant um, at Development Linkages and Executive Member of IDC Australia. Um, we've allowed about 25 to 30 minutes for um, Q&A, and I'll be keeping the speakers strictly to their time, so we can have plenty of time for Q&A at the end. So I'd like to invite... Uh, thank you, Matt, for that introduction. So I'm talking about uh, the macroeconomic context that frames the aid budget for, uh, handed down last night. So the Treasurer announced last night a, a $21 billion turnaround the government's fiscal position for this year compared to the last budget, with a deficit of over $19 billion for 2012-13, to be followed by two more years of deficit. Indeed, the recovery from deficits is taking much longer than expected, as you can see in the graph. And if you listen to the government, there's a lot of talk about doom and gloom about the Australian fiscal position, particularly related to, to revenue. I'd like to give you a slightly more optimistic perspective on the macro, of the macro context, particularly for the Australian aid program. Although there are risks in coming years that the government might push out um, the 0.5% of GNI target as it has done previously, um, if it's not able to rein in spending. This graph here shows total revenue and expenditure as a share of GDP. And it sort of paints an interesting perspective. In the, early, the first half of the last decade, um, revenue was falling as a share of GDP, and the government was able to rein in spending 
okay, which has led to um, uh, you know, the uh, budget surpluses that we saw in the last in the previous government. Um, along came the the minerals boom and uh, revenue increased markedly, and at the end of uh, the last government's uh, time in office, um, expenditure went up substantially as well. Along came the GFC, revenue went down quite dramatically, but expenditure uh, remained high uh, as a result of the stimulus package. Since then, expenditure has slowly come down, um, but revenue is... um, is is only slowly um, increasing. Okay, so so where is all this doom and gloom talk coming from? Well, um, in terms of revenue, yes, it has fallen, but only relative to expectations. So this chart shows um, in the top lines here um, revenue projected. Ex- uh, in the last budget and uh, the last MIFO. Um, and in this budget, revenue is much lower, but as you can see, revenue is still strongly increasing. Okay. And the difference is largely made up by um, much lower than expected company tax. So what are the underlying reasons for this this fall in revenue relative to expectations? Well, yes, um, the terms of trade have fallen, um, but only by around 10% from its peak a couple of years ago. And it's not predicted to fall much much further than than it has already. In terms of of, uh, economic growth, this chart shows uh, nominal GDP growth, and yes... (coughs) In this budget, the, uh, the blue, blue line here um, shows a, a bit of a dip in nominal GDP growth, and that does explain some of the revenue fall, but it only accounts for some of the reduced... Um, so, well, some of the, the uh, fall in revenue relative to expectations. What about on the expenditure side? Well... The government um, has announced major savings in this this budget handed down last night. Um, But, as you can see in this chart, expenditure is largely unchanged relative to expectations six months ago or a year ago. So, therefore, essentially what this is saying is that um, all of those savings that the government has made have been undone, so to speak, by new spending. Okay, what about the, the aid budget? Okay, so this chart here shows um, it's comparing ODA relative to spending in the health, education and defence sector. Okay, ODA is, is rather small compared to those, but um, it is increasing as a share of total expenditure, um, whereas the same cannot be said for the many other areas of government spending. So relative to, to other programs, um, ODA spending is doing relatively well. In 
In fact, if you look at, look at year-on-year growth for the ODA program, um, growth in, in ODA, ODA spending is, is mostly over 10% each year over the forward estimates, um, which is much higher than these other sectors, um, which are um, around 5%. This is in normal terms. Okay. Um, this chart here shows ODA spending relative to defence spending. Um, it's always a good measure to see how um, what's happening with the A budget. And so this ODA, this line here shows ODA spending as a share of gross national income, which is measured on the right-hand axis. And defence spending as a share of GDP is on the left-hand axis. Okay. Starting with defence, from 1995, defence spending as a share of GDP has, has fallen quite markedly. Okay. Up to around now, and moving forward, um, defence spending has, has largely plateaued, so the government, whilst has not exactly reversed the trend, um, but has stabilised uh, defence spending um, and is nowhere near the 2% target that uh, the defence sector is hoping for. Um, in terms of the, the aid budget, on the other hand, um, as we know, has increased markedly in recent years, but is expected to continue that growth path um, towards the 0.5% of GNI target. Um, so, yes, it has been pushed back, but you know, we are heading in, at least heading in that direction according to the forward estimates. In terms... So things are looking relatively good for the aid program um, compared to other areas of spending. Um, in terms of the risks, well, to bring the... Um, budget back to surplus in three years' time um, will require revenue recovering, and I think that will happen, but will also require tight controls on spending, and therein lies the risk to the Australian funding of the Australian aid program. If it's not able to rein in spending and keep tight controls, then we'll be in the situation, as we have been in the last couple of years, where the government will be forced to make hard decisions and that's the situation where um, reaching the 0.5% target may be delayed in the future. Thank you. Great, thanks very much, Tony. We thought it would be useful to have a sort of macro context before we dive into the details of the aid program, uh, which is what what I'm going to do. So I hope you can see the PowerPoint. I'm sorry, it's not the best uh, setup. We didn't expect so many people, uh, to be honest. Um, but um, uh, bear with us. So I wrote a blog on Monday, you know, trying to get uh, my views out there. I said that either uh, the government would have to put forward this uh, $500 million increase, which would be the third largest increase ever, or the sector would be disappointed for the third time in a sort of quick period, because the first time was last year when there was a modest increase and the target was deferred. Then the second time was December when they took out the $375 million 
for um, asylum seekers, right? And uh, what in fact has happened is that we did get the third largest increase ever, right? In fact, we got that 500 million, but still, if you look at the sector's response, it's still very much disappointment, right? So whereas I thought it was or, actually it should be and. So I'm, kind of, I'm going to try and explore in this uh, why we have this uh, response and, and I guess give my view on uh, whether, it's, whether it's warranted and how we should understand the, uh, what's happening to the aid budget and also move the discussion towards the end uh, from issues of quantity to issues of effectiveness, which I think are somewhat worrying. Um, so this is just the, uh, uh, the new uh, projection on aid. And let's start of all, let's focus on uh, this year. Uh, this year, the aid budget is up to 5.7 billion. Uh, it's a 500 million increase to get from 0.35 to 0.37. That's what the government committed to in the last budget. Last year, we estimated it cost 600 million, but there's been slower nominal growth than expected. Uh, somewhat offset by some base effects, but overall, it's, it's slightly cheaper to achieve that target um, than uh, we thought it would be a year ago. So if you just focus on, on the historical record, uh, you know, you've got to say these are good times for Australian aid. I don't know if you can see this slide, but it shows its aid since 1970 in uh, real terms. And you can see it's almost been like $2 billion until uh, 2000, and then it's been on the sharp trajectory, and uh, it's gone up from $2 billion up to, you know, that uh, over $5 billion, uh, now. And... Um, if you look at the aid to GNI ratio, which we you know, give a lot of attention to, that's, that was in, from the 70s on this uh, downward path, right? and it started recovering last decade, and uh, now it's on an upward path. Uh, but we should note from this graph, it has taken us 10 years to get from 0.24 to 0.37. Right? And that says something, because that's 0.13. Right? You need another 0.13 to get to 0.5, so maybe it's going to take us another 10 years. Right? There's some clue, I think, to history, and I'm going to, I'll come back to that point later. But this, has, this is the transformation uh, in Australian aid, and whatever disappointments we might have about the budget, I think we have to acknowledge there has been a, a real transformation, and that's had an international impact. So, oops, just to give you some international figures, Australia's become a much more generous donor. Right? We always say, including myself, that we're a stingy donor relative to our economy, uh, but that gap is closing. So this is how much aid the typical donor gives as a percentage of their economy, and uh, it's, about, it's about between 0.35 and 4, but unfortunately it's coming down right, as aid falls. And here we are. We've always been, you know, we've been about 0.253, but we're going up. And uh, that was last year's figures, so you think this year we're going to kind of close that gap. So at least reach a sort of average level of uh, generosity, right? So that's progress compared to where we were. And because we're more generous and because our economy is growing and because of the strength of the dollar, uh, we've also, we're becoming a much more important donor. Right? So this graph's sort of upside down, but the smaller the column, the most, more important you are. So we used to be like the 15th most important donor about 10 years ago, but uh, we've come down to 10, and last year we were 8, and uh, this year, you know, we reckon, it's an estimate, but we reckon in 2013 we are going to be the sixth largest uh, donor in the world. And that's because there are five really big donors. There's the US, right, which is at 30 billion. So, you know, you can't argue with their leadership, whatever happens to the budget. Then you've got the UK, which is second, 
at 14 billion, but growing rapidly, right, with their massive scale-up. Then Germany, France and Japan, I think more or less sort of static. So they're the big five. But then traditionally we've had Canada, Netherlands and recently Australia. But we know Canada and Netherlands are both cutting their aid budget right, quite a lot, whereas Australia is increasing. So we reckon this year we're going to move into the sixth place. So what's the problem? Right? Why aren't we uh, happier? And I guess the problem is this 0.5 target and its deferral and the uh, issue of asylum seekers and aid funding. So let's tackle these two. Uh, Tony mentioned that uh, you know, this 0.5 target's been delayed the last two years. But one point I want to make is that this scale-up has in fact been delayed for the last six years. Right? In five of the last six budgets, Labor has pushed back the scale-up. And this graph, if you can see it, makes this point. Right? It shows for each budget what the projected scale-up is. Right? So the, that's in 2008-9, first Labor budget. Right? The dotted line is outside the forward estimates. Right? It's what takes you... But what would take you? What would you be required to do to get to 0.5? Uh, but then 2009-10, right? You see, pushing it back a bit, right? 2010-11, actually there were some base adjustments, so that, that made it more difficult. But again, pushing back. 2011-12, uh, that was the one year we didn't push back. I think that's when Kevin Rudd was foreign minister. That may be a coincidence. Right, that was the one year we just kept to that. The trajectory, the the outlook was stable. Um, but 2012-13, again, pushed it back. And that was the first time, you know, we pushed back the 0.5 target, right? Because by that time, we were getting so close to 2015, we couldn't push it back without affecting the target. But that, that meant that was the first time people noticed it had been pushed back. It didn't mean the pushback hadn't been happening before. It just hadn't been noticed because the 2015 target wasn't touched. And then this year, and that's the historical figures, uh, again, another pushback. So, you know, you can see in, in 20... According to the first plan... You know, by now, we should have been up at 0.4, right? right? So we're nowhere near that. So we can't just say it's the last couple of years. This has been a problem uh, right from the start of the attempt to get to 0.5. And what that's meant... What it's meant... Uh, you just press return. Is that the task of getting to a 0.5 has got more and more difficult every year. We've just pressed page down. Okay. Uh, the more you push it back, the more difficult it becomes. So initially, we would have needed a 700, 600, 700 million increase every year. That's pretty difficult. But towards the end, you know, it's almost one billion dollars a year to get to the uh, you know, for each year right? and uh, that's very difficult right? this is actually what our annual aid increases look like right? and that's why this is the third largest ever, right? this is the one we just had, the 500 you know, so every now and then we get to 500 or 600 but we don't sustain it right? we have a few 100s as well right? so to think that um, we can have you know, a, a, almost a 1 billion dollar aid increase uh, year after year uh, undermines credibility. Not only that, in fact, each plan is being back-end loaded. Right? So these are successive plans to get to uh, 0.5, and they all go up. You know, by the last year, it's, it's 1.4 billion uh, increase. Now, that's the way the UK did their scale-up. Right? So I'm not saying it can't be done. They did it right at the end with uh, 2.5 billion pounds in one year. 
But you know, that's where you've got strong support uh, from the Prime Minister, strong bipartisan support. Uh, I think you know, what we see in Australia, the historical trend shows that we just don't have that support um, for a, uh, you know, huge uh, increases in aid. We, we, if we're going to do it, we're going to have to take a more moderate path. So what is the uh, you know, role of this 0.5 target? It still has some advantages. It's not a firm commitment, but it's firmer than having an undated target or even you know, 0.7 as an aspiration. And it does set a benchmark for the next government. Right? I think the good news about this budget for supporters of aid is that the next government can cut aid and still deliver a large aid increase. Right? Because uh, it will be cutting aid relative to these forward estimates, and the forward estimates, have that's the green line, have these very large increases in aid. They're almost $900 million a year for the next uh, four years. Uh, the disadvantages of the 0.5 target, it's not actually going to give you 0.5. Right? At least not in the near future. Not on time. And it is a source of major uncertainty. You know, I, think it's, I feel sorry for people trying to manage the aid program. And that's the point I'm going to come back to uh, at the end. Now, what about this diversion? I just want to... Um, you know, I hope you don't mind if I make a few critical remarks about good friends here. Uh, so we had $375 million taken out of last year's budget and then $375 million out of this year's budget. I just want to make two points, first of all, uh, in kind of to clarify what's happened. You know, whatever you think of that, uh, there's an aid has still increased by $500 million this year. Right? There's, it's not as if that $500 million is being taken up by the $375 Right? You can, you know, whether or not you include the asylum seeker as part of our aid, which is the um, line in the uh, the red, I think, uh, or maybe green over here. Sorry, uh, it's a, on top. Whether or not that's aid, we have now 500 million more. So that's that's good. And I do want to say, I do want to, you know, make a uh, appeal that the argument, you know, that this argument, right, that I think comes from the Australian Institute, which many have picked up on, that. You know, this is bad because it makes Australia the third largest beneficiary of our aid. I know a lot of NGOs are now making this point, but it's really not a valid argument. Uh, or at least if you want to make it valid, it's been true for a long time. In fact, we're not the, you know, not the third largest, we'd be by far the largest. Right? You've got scholarships, which are $400 million, right, which are all spent in Australia. Right? And ultimately, aid is foreign currency. Right? Aid is going to be spent overseas. Right? That's the nature of aid. It may not all be spent in Australia. Some of it might be spent in China or the US. But uh, I think we shouldn't be looking at where it's spent, but we should be looking at whether it's being spent uh, effectively. So is it being spent effectively? Uh, you know, I think that's where uh, we should uh, you know, put the spotlight on the government. And uh, although the government issued some clarification in this budget, uh, it's still not very clear uh, what that money is uh, actually being spent on. So uh, Bob Carr said uh, back in December that it was being spent on basic substance. Then in front of Senate estimates, the uh, Diet Secretary said it was going to be used for onshore processing, including the Health Detention Network. In the budget, it says it will be used for accommodation, food, clothing and other basic necessities. But I think there's still leaves open the question of whether it's funding the detention network, because those people are still being accommodated. So this kind of definition doesn't rule out the detention network. And, uh, you know, I think my, you know, this is a complex issue and I'm, I don't... I can't fully resolve it myself, but I don't think we can have a proper debate until we get more information from the government on what they're actually spending uh, this money on. And I think if it includes the forced detention network, then I think it would certainly be a very dubious policy 
to use aid to finance the forced detention network. If it's supporting people in communities, uh, you think, well, it might be a more legitimate use uh, of aid. So I think that's one big question around this 375 million. The other one is this: the cap. So I think the, the, it's good the government's put in place a cap now. They've said it won't go beyond 375 million, and we, you know, a lot of people have raised that as an issue that now you've got a lot of unpredictability um, around aid. Uh, but they haven't said they won't spend more than 375 million, right, from aid. They just said if they do, they'll add it to aid. But you know, you can still imagine that putting a lot of pressure at budget time um, on the aid budget, right? Maybe the aid budget itself will be reduced, and then we'll have more spending on um, asylum seekers, and that will add to the uh, overall ODA. So I think there's still a lot of uh, a lack of clarity around this uh, ODA policy. And um, while the budget, you know, didn't make the situation worse, uh, I don't think it uh, it improved it very much either. So that's uh, that's my take. We have a solid increase this year. We um, have a delay in the 0.5 target, but it wasn't a credible target to begin with. And to think that you know four billion were taken out of the forward estimate, four billion was cut from aid. I mean, that money would not have got to aid uh, anyway. So uh, I'm not. Uh, as worried about the 0.5 from a quantity point of view, it's more an issue about future planning. The asylum seekers, I agree, it's uh, not a good decision, but it's the, 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 it was uh, not a budget decision. It was a decision made made last year. Let me go on before I come back to talking about the uncertainty, just to give a few more kind of some basic analysis of what was in the budget. I know Ackford have actually done a lot more analysis than we had time to do, but in terms of where the money is being spent. Um, I'm sure you'll be interested in that. Uh, if you just look at the big items, AusAid um, country programs and AusAid global programs, you know you can see this was the dip last year. Right? That was the money being taken out for asylum seekers. So country programs actually fell last year, and global programs were sort of uh, steady. And they so now they both reverted their growth. So it's sort of back to uh, business as usual. Uh, other government department aid, you know, AusAid is the major donor, but there's also ACR and um, Federal Police. That has um, been pretty... That's been falling, right? You can see uh, in the last five years. So AusAid's become more and more dominant. But now it's gone up. That's the asylum seekers. So if you take out the asylum seekers, then again, uh, other government department aid is not on an upward trend. Um, so AusAid remains clearly uh, at the centre of the aid scale-up. I think it is interesting that AusAid is still on a steep trajectory when it comes to its departmental spending. Right? So that's that always confuses... It confuses me when I work for AusAid, it still confuses me, but departmental spending is um, not the aid programs, right? It's the staff and the office and so on. And uh, you can see it's pretty flat in the first uh, half of the last decade, but uh, has gone on a steep trajectory upwards. It's now 350 million. Of course, some of that's inflation. These are just nominal figures we ran out of time uh, to adjust for inflation. But it is a very steep uh, increase. It is interesting, if you look in the forward estimates, as far as I can tell, there's not going to be any more increase in this. Right? So this is now going to be flat. In fact, it may even be falling. So AusAid has had a massive increase in its uh, departmental spending. It's come under some criticism for that. Uh, I think it, there won't be, from the budget, there won't be any more increase. Things will be much tighter when it comes to departmental spending at AusAid. 
Uh, in terms of the highlights of um, you know specific things you know beyond these uh, general trends, um, I think uh, Matt Dornan was looking at the budget uh, last night, and, and what he noticed is a big difference in the way Pacific and East Asia are faring. Uh, you know, we used to say that uh, Pacific and East Asia were got about the same amount of aid, and that used to be true. But now uh, East Asia is clearly pulled ahead of the Pacific. Right? So the Pacific aid is stuck at 1.1 billion. Uh, and uh, it has been for some years now. Whereas uh, East Asia got a big increase by 100 million and uh, is now up at 1.4. So I, I guess that makes sense. There's only so much aid the Pacific can absorb. And if you're going to have an expanding aid budget and you want to keep it local, then it's going to be East Asia rather than the Pacific. Uh, and we do see that at the country level as well. And we see a big in- Indonesia gets a massive increase. Right? Indonesia is the big winner from this budget. Uh, Indonesia gets a $60 million increase. That's about a 10% increase for its budget, whereas PNG is flat. So whereas Indonesia and PNG used to be the two biggest programs, both around half a billion, now PNG is still half a billion, but Indonesia is at, uh, has reached 0.65, or 650 million. It's pretty hard to work out uh, which cuts have been restored from the asylum seeker diversion, and we haven't really got a good handle on that, but you, you know the... The main uh, burden of those cuts, ironically, fell on uh, humanitarian aid and disaster relief. And uh, at least we can see 100 million of those cuts uh, have been restored. Uh, Non-government organisations did very well out of the budget with a one-third increase in the uh, ANCP. That's government core funding for NGOs. So it's up by 35 million. And then uh, if you look at global programs, the one that stands out is global health. So I don't know if that's a Gavi or a Global Fund, but uh, someone's doing very well. And uh, Global Health Spending is up by uh, 60 million. Uh, so let me close with uh, what I think is the real problem with the aid program. And um, it's not, you know, for my money, it's not the quantity, although I'm sure you know, the government sh- you know, can, should do more for aid over time. But the real problem at the moment is uncertainty. Uh, what is the future... Uh, trajectory of aid. Um, you know, clearly that 0.5 target is not credible. If you delay a target twice, it's not credible. And uh, we know the opposition has just come out and said, well, we're not, we don't put a date on that target. So we don't know what the trajectory of aid is going to be. And, um, you know, we don't know, although there's some clarity, we still don't know whether there'll be future raids, more raids in terms of asylum seekers. So just to make this uh, issue more concrete, if you think about last year, you know, last year Aussie brought out this four-year uh, plan, the CAPF, the Comprehensive Aid Policy Framework, uh, which you know, was widely welcomed. Um, but the situation, it's sort of out of date. It's got very quickly out of date. So last year, the uh, CAPF total for 2015, as I estimated, was $8.3 billion. Uh, that, that was the target. But if you take out 375 for asylum seekers because that wasn't budgeted for. And now the uh, scale-up by 2015 is only $7 billion, right? because the scale-up's been delayed, GDP growth is slower. So now, if you're going to do the CAPF again, uh, your target should be $6.6 billion. Right? Well, that's a big difference from 8.3 to 6.6. That's a $1.7 billion cut. So where are those cuts uh, being made? Uh, well, we don't know because Aussie um, didn't release that CAPF. They didn't release a new CAPF. Uh, with the budget. So we're stuck with the old one, uh, but we know it's out of date. Uh, realistically, even if Aussie does uh, come out with a new CAPF, 
Uh, we know the uncertainty will stay until the election, right, because there will be a new government, and presumably they want to make their own stamp uh, on you know, the shape as well as the quantity uh, of aid. And so you're going to have this uh, huge uncertainty around aid, and um, that's very bad for aid effectiveness. Right? It will undermine, it will slow decision-making. Right? People don't know they've got the money, they'll be reluctant to make long-term commitments, and you know, for aid to work, you need to have long-term commitments. In the past, AusAid's been somewhat insulated from these risks by this large contingency. So the government you know, held back a large amount in the outer years and didn't actually give it to AusAid. Right? It kept it in treasury, as it were, in contingency. And then if the, when the scale-up was delayed, it could just take away that contingency. Right? That contingency never entered planning. But if you look at the contingency now, it's gone. Right? It's no longer there. I guess it's uh, just been scaled back so much. So you no longer have that cushion. Right? Any more uh, delays are going to actually bite into aid programs. And uh, I think that's going to make decision-making uh, very slow uh, at, uh, within the aid program because of the risks. So just to... Um, you know, illust- or, or kind of, there's a little detail there, just to step back. You know, when we worked on the aid review, we said you know, the main problem was this lack of predictability or strategic clarity. And strategic clarity required funding clarity and a plan. And the problem then, you know, we had funding clarity, because then everyone believed in the 0.5. Right? We were, there was a bipartisan commitment to 0.5 by 2015. We all thought we were going to get there. There wasn't a plan, right? So we did the independent review, and then AusAid came, and now there, there are lots of plans and strategies and uh, but now the problem is we have a plan. Right? That's meant to be a smiley face. Right? So we have a plan, but we no longer have the funding clarity. Right? Because we no longer have 0.5, a serious uh, target and, a, and an agreed uh, trajectory. So for different reasons, we're back in the situation we were in 2010 where we've lost what uh, we called that crucial spine of predictability which you need to run an effective multi-year uh, aid program. So to wrap up uh, my presentation, you know, last year I wrote on the budget that it was strong on quality because there were all those aid reforms at the aid budget, but it was weak on quantity because it delayed the 0.5 and there was a very small aid increase. So this year my conclusion was somewhat the opposite. Actually, it's uh, quite strong on quantity, despite the criticisms. There is a big increase, uh, but it's uh, not very strong on quality because uh, it doesn't do much to resolve this uncertainty, which I think now uh, besets the aid program. And uh, just to give you some gratuitous advice, which is my you know, privilege and prerogative now as an academic, is um, you know, if you're an aid campaigner, you know, don't trust back-end loaded scale-up plans, right? because they might work in the UK, but the experience shows they don't tend to work here. That's the bad news. On the other hand, you know, be proud of what you've achieved, right? because you have engineered a massive increase in aid spending in Australia, and the next two years have got you know, stretched targets, but ones that are at least reasonable. Right? The government said that the next two years aid should increase by about $700 million. So we should take aid from 0.37 to 0.39 to 0.41. That seems to me like something that uh, you could try to hold, uh, whichever government comes into office, hold account to. And um, my advice for the new government, um, you know, which I will pass on to them... <laughs> is that uh, whoever wins in uh, September, whoever wins, will need to have uh, a new plan and a new funding trajectory. Right? You know, they'll, because the existing trajectory isn't credible and the plan that exists now is out of date. So there will be a big reform challenge, uh, I think, for uh, whichever government 
uh, wins office uh, in September. Uh, thank you very much. Well, um, thanks very much. Um, and I haven't got a PowerPoint. I know that's terribly disappointing. Um, but I've got to say, you've got to love the graphs. They um, really do uh, add to that point of a picture tells a thousand stories. Um, I would like to say, first of all, thank you very much for the opportunity to be at this forum. I feel um, I'm about three and a half months into the chief executive role with Oxfam. Um, so I'm delighted that you have enough confidence to invite me to comment on the budget, uh, and I suspect it's not because I'm the only woman on the panel. <laughs> um, but truly, thank you very much. Um, I, I guess what I'd like to do is just um, make a few uh, really much more general comments from the perspective of a, um, a non-government organisation. And in doing that... Um, uh, we have come out hard as an INGO sector on this budget as we have done in other budgets. And there's a very good reason for that, which is evident and I think which has been alluded to by Stephen. And that is that overseas aid doesn't have another voice that can come out hard. And the INGO sector in particular, I think, only is recipient to about 12% of the overall aid budget. So it's not as if we're a massive beneficiary. But um, I think, as uh, my colleague Tim Costello said in some of the media at the weekend, uh, the poor people in other countries don't get to vote. So I think we have a really crucial role to play to continue to keep governments to account. Um, and, uh, and I think that that will probably continue to be the case because when we've looked at Anthony's presentations and the, uh, the, the kind of macroeconomic overview of what's likely to happen in the future and the need for whoever is in the next government to actually keep a control on spending, um, and then we look at what a tiny proportion of overall government spending the aid budget is, you can see that it could perhaps easily be dipped into without upsetting too many people. And I think the other thing that's interesting about the... Um, the context of the aid budget and the kind of the yin and yang that Stephen's talked about, you know, the good news and the bad news, I guess, is that this budget's interesting in the sense that the government has projected out on some of their, you know, signature um, pieces of policy. So, uh, and you know, the NDIS, for example, which I think is, is an, an incredibly important legacy that this government will leave for Australia, and they're projecting out the costing of that over many years. Uh, so, in, on the one hand, the government's saying we want to talk about certainty in terms of expenditure, but on the other hand, they're saying, but we're going to pull back from our commitments where we did have certainty around aid funding. So... Um, I think the political context is quite uh, interesting. Um, so in terms of, uh, so from my perspective, I guess then, the, the big issue is, um, you know, the legacy of this government is that there has been this gradual and incremental increase in aid, but there has been, and, and you know, I, I really don't want to talk about broken promises because we're sick of hearing that kind of rhetoric in the media about this government, but there has, has been a stepping back, I guess, from those issues of the commitment in relation to overseas aid. Uh, and from our perspective, we know what an important role that, uh, that is in terms of the sector. Um, 
again, from our perspective, I think... Um, I'm just trying to get the technology to work here. Uh, I think Stephen's alluded to the fact of what does that mean in terms of, you know, what the strategy is going forward for, for whoever comes into power. And... Um, uh, one of the, the interesting things, and we were at a forum on Friday, and I, you know, where uh, um, I guess I'm always interested in what are the politics. You know, the politics often don't get talked about in a kind of strict sense in this sector or in an overt sense. And my own academic background is in political science, so I guess I kind of want to look at some of these issues from that lens. But I think the the campaigners around overseas aid will have to ask the question of what are the politics of the future. Now, if there is a change of government, we know that there's going to... Um, there's been a lot of, um, I guess, um, chest-thumping around, uh, you know, constraining spending, bringing in spending, looking at, you know, how spending is going to be done. Uh, we know that there's equivocation um, from the uh, bipartisan support in terms of the 0.5% um, increase in gross national income. And we also know, and I think Stephen's figures show this very well that whilst the next couple of years, if the scale-up in terms of overseas aid funding um, continues, is probably reasonable. You know, if you think about a 700 million scale-up each year, I think in the last year it's more than that. I think in the last year it tips the billion-dollar mark, and I think there is a question about whether any government of any persuasion is going to be responsible enough or brave enough to say, well, we're going to tip a million dollars extra into overseas development. And, of course, you know, who knows what the, the state of the economy will be at that time. You know, sorry, but well, the rest of us don't. <laughs> or you're willing to have a, have a go at it anyway. Um, but, but even so, it, it's a big ask, and particularly when we see those historical figures, we see that overseas aid is at, a, as a, at an all-time high in terms of since the 1980s. Um, so I think there's a, a question there about how the politics of this run out, and I think there's a question for us, the kind of public voice, the campaigning voice around international aid, where we need to think about how we run those arguments into the future. I mean, at the end of the day, I guess our position is pretty simple. What we want is for overseas aid to be spent in overseas countries, notwithstanding the definitional kind of nuances around that, because that's where the most impact can have if that money is spent in people in those economies to build sustainability. And we want transparency around that and we want effectiveness about, around that. Um, and we want Australia to continue to play a critical role. But I do think that we have to acknowledge the kind of um, the political environment that we're going into and is the best way to kind of push for a more gradual scale-up that's going to be realisable? Is, it, is there a different way that we can get those political commitments? Given we started with bipartisan commitment, we've seen leadership by the UK in terms of going to the 0.7 target, and yet in Australia we don't seem to be able to hold the line on those political commitments. Um, I want to make... Um, I do want to comment on the diversion. You'd be disappointed if I didn't comment on the diversion of funds. And... Um, uh, and we've had the figures and, you know, I think, Stephen, you've very adequately covered the issues about, well, what the hell has it been spent on? Is it just plugging a black hole in the budget? Um, is it, you know, just kind of the sleight of hand accounting or is it something else? And I think that the important thing... if and, and there are going to be other questions. We've already seen in the media that Julie Bishop has been asked about her views of, well, if this diversion money is spent on Manus Island, does that make it overseas aid? 
Um, what does it mean in the AusAid budget if this money is going to be spent on the regional plan for asylum seekers in terms of capacity building? Is that really overseas aid or is that still somehow plugging a hole in relation to asylum seekers? And again, I think from the perspective of the sector that's watching the aid budget, um, we do need greater transparency about what is the purpose of the money. You know, what is it actually being used to do, whether it's in, a, in the context of Australia or whether it's on Manus Island or whether it's in Sri Lanka or whether it's in other parts of the world where people are coming from, other parts of the world where people are fleeing to come here. And, uh, um, and, and again, I think that's, that's going to be a really important issue in terms of the discussions we have with the coalition into the future as they kind of shape their policy. And, and if there is a change of government, and there's always a big uh, reality gap between actually being in opposition and throwing the tomatoes and being in government and receiving them being thrown at you, uh, but, you know, to try to shape that kind of understanding of how the overseas aid budget should be um, affected in the future. Um, from uh, our perspective... I was showing off to Reese today about being very tech-savvy. Now the technology's not going to do the right thing by me, so I think I've been uh, mozzed a bit. Um, from, from our sector, um, I guess we would say, you know, we, we've done well. I mean, we've done well as a, a little bit of the aid budget. Um, I think the important kind of modelling around the ANCP funding, which has had an increase, we understand that there will be some um, uh, um, commitment made to the kind of funding into the longer term around the partnership agreements. I think, again, from the perspective of our sector, we need to think about what the trends are going into the future, and we've just had the discussion out at um, the breakfast meeting with um, our colleagues from World Vision who are here somewhere. They were, we're really talking... Thank you, Nancy. So I'm going to choose your steal your ideas and hopefully reflect them appropriately. But I do think there are some questions about how we make it... Um, more um, attractive for governments to fund our sector so we can deliver services. And I was going to say more expedient, but that sounds kind of opportunistic. But we do know, if, as you say, if the projection on funding for actual AusAid administrative costs is plateauing, then uh, we know that AusAid need to be able to have mechanisms to disperse funds effectively. If they're dealing with uncertainty themselves and they're dealing with major government partners and uh, bilateral arrangements and so on, uh, and obviously, from our perspective, our sector gives a pretty good service on the ground. Um, from Oxfam's perspective, we have a particular commitment to a model around sustainability, around empowerment and rights protections. But again, I think our sector needs to think about how we interface with the changing political context, the changing policy context in terms of how aid's delivered. Um, there were um, highlights, uh, other highlights in the budget. Um, certainly the uh, substantial increase in WASH funding around uh, water and sanitation and hygiene is good. Uh, Stephen's highlighted some of the, the areas of increasing some of the other program areas. There are some aspects of disappointment and um, I think I speak on behalf of the sector for thanking ACFID where their staff stayed up till at least five o'clock this morning kind of crunching the numbers and doing that analysis and I would encourage you to have a look at their analysis which has been made online. Um, but overall, I um, would broadly, I think, agree with um, the conclusion that Stephen's reached, uh, which is uh, basically what we're facing is uncertainty. We're facing um, a demonstration from both the government and the coalition that they have been 
uncomfortable and unwilling or unable to actually stick to the commitment in relation to scaling up to 0.5 of uh, gross national income. Uh, and I think that uh, we need to just uh, somehow be mindful of monitoring what goes on in terms of overseas development. I think we still have a job with the Australian public to put it in perspective in terms of how little is spent overseas and what an incredibly important investment that is in a very self-interested way for Australia. So, yes, from our perspective, it's absolutely crucial that we continue to help the world's poorest people, but we have a whole range of um, business relationships, trading relationships, policy relationships, particularly with our nearest neighbours, and if we start to pull back from some of those commitments with helping their vulnerable and poor people and providing our own sort of technical expertise into the mix, then there's a question of where that places us uh, in the context of our um, political role, our policy role in this uh, sector. Um, so I think that's all I wanted to say for now, but um, thank you very much for the opportunity to talk and uh, I look forward to the questions and your presentation. Uh, morning all, and thank you for the opportunity to come and talk to you today. Thank you to the De Development Policy Centre. Um, firstly, apologies on behalf of the chairperson, Mel Dunn, uh, for the IDC Australia group. Um, it was an invitation to IDC to speak, and he was intending to, but he couldn't make it down from Brisbane. So I'm here on uh, his behalf, um, and have cobbled together some graphs and stuff from the budget to try and depict some of the numbers. Um, Hopefully, um, it was done in a rush last night, so hopefully you can decipher them. Um, I guess uh, IDC Australia uh, represents, or maybe I'll go into the slide, um, a group of you know private sector organisations within Australia largely, but we do now have international companies as members. Um, we also have commercial arms of some of the universities and research institutes as our members. Um, I guess to date we've been a fairly silent partner in the aid program and we're probably not as obvious in things like budget papers and annual reports because we don't have a line item there or we don't get a lot of mention. Um, but we do deliver a significant portion of the aid program on behalf of AusAid. Um, I think in the past too the IDC group has been reluctant to, to make public statements. Um, we do get a fair bit of press or our members do sometimes and it's not often positive but... Um, there has been a change in the executive's thinking around that. Uh, we're professionalising as a group um, and I think we feel it's important we come out and, and talk more about the aid program and our views on it and how we think we can be uh, improved. Um, so hence the invitation today. So thank you, Stephen. Um, and of course, you know, we're all about trying to improve effectiveness of aid and improve... Uh, the situation for those in our region and beyond who are less well off than ourselves. Um, so in terms of the budget outcome, I've put up here excellent result because I saw 500 million and that might be a bit um, influenced by my working for AusAid in the mid-1990s when budget cuts were de rigueur and um, a $70 million increase was celebrated. So um, listening to people not being happy with that is interesting. Um, but it was interesting that, you know, despite that $500 million increase, there was only one major new budget measure 
around the MDGs um, and perhaps that was, you know, to reflect the fact that within Canberra it wasn't a good time to be um, coming out with a whole lot of new initiatives. Um, and certainly, you know, our members would support that increase in focus on the MDGs around health and education, which are key sectors in which they operate, as well as the continuing commitment to the Solomon Islands, where our members have been critical in supporting Ramsey deliver uh, a number of their major programs there. Um, in terms of the statistic, I, I have a problem with ADA GNI, uh, not least because the government doesn't control the GNI aspect of that statistic. And so I've, you know, I like to think of how much of the allocation that the government has within its control it actually puts towards ADA, and that's a more truer reflection of maybe the out outcomes of um, committee meetings and ministers' preferences. And so in terms of that, for every $100 that the government's going to spend, $1.45 of that's going towards ADA. Uh, that's an increase from last year, which I think, given the current climate, is an excellent result, where it was $1.42. And I've just put up the number there from the last coalition budget when it was $1.17. So I think you know, there's certainly been a strong level of commitment within the current government to increase aid. And what does this all mean for commercial suppliers, uh, managing contractors? We seem to be called commercial suppliers now within AUSAID. Um, it's difficult to track because we don't have, like I said, a line item in the budget papers. Um, so I've just got a couple of areas to maybe help get a sense of, of how, what it might mean for our members. Uh, I'm not sure if you can see this. This is um, basically some data that AUSAID's now putting out along with the annual report on effectiveness uh, showing what uh, of the strategic goals, what areas and who's delivering them. Um, so commercial suppliers are second from the bottom there. You're probably struggling to see the numbers. Um, so this key one here is effective governance. So we are actually, in fact, the most significant uh, deliverer of effective governance programs within the A program, second, to, uh, second is the multilateral organisations. Um, Promoting opportunities for all is also a very significant part of what we do. Uh, and given that you know, a number of the universities are our members, the commercial arms, you know, that's obviously a key area that they're involved in as well. And sustainable economic development is the other key area where we contribute through the programs that we deliver. So what's the outcome in the budget in terms of those strategic goals compared to last year? Um, they all seem to be dropping somewhat in terms of the proportion of the total aid. Um, sustainable economic development is going down, promoting opportunities for all is slightly increased, effective in governance programs is a smaller proportion. And this re you know, reflects what's been talked about before, about the uh, reinstatement of money to the humanitarian vote, as well as an increase in saving lives, which likely reflects the um, MDG initiative. Um, many, so, inconclusive, maybe, maybe less money for managing contractors, although recognising that you know, the programs we work on are planned well ahead and often three to five years, so a year-to-year -year analysis is probably not the best. Where do managing contractors operate within the aid program is another way of looking at it. And we're very much focused around the country and regional programs uh, areas. That's where we sort of deliver most of our work. Um, the global programs... Uh, goes to other organisations, multilaterals and the like. Um, so if you look at analysis of the country program votes and what's the increases over the years there, 
Um, this has data from 2002-2007 to give a bit of historic perspective, as well as the last three years. Um, so you can see, as has been mentioned, the Pacific um, is somewhat plateauing out. Uh, you can see, in terms of this uh, mauve or purple bar here, it's actually quite flat compared to the previous year. This is the outcome for this year, expected outcome, and that maybe reflects the impact of the reprioritisation of the money that was taken out for the asylum seekers. Um, so that's impacted on the country programs, perhaps. And then you can see the real uh, winners from this year's new budget. Obviously, Indonesia stands out. Um, East Asia, as has been mentioned. So given managing contractors or commercial suppliers operating these country programs, there's obviously an increase in the scale of the country programs. Um, and I also did some analysis on what percentage of the uh, total ADA actually comes from country programs. I guess I did this with the expectation that over the years, um, the level, given the level of uh, support that multilaterals have received and the like, uh, I would have thought the global programs would have become a more significant portion of total ADA. But when I looked at it and tracked it back to 02, 07, you can actually see that it's held its own, if not increased, in terms of the delivery through the country programs. So that, I think I've read somewhere, might have been one of the Development Policy Centre blogs, that you know a lot of the increase to the multilaterals has actually stemmed from uh, activities through the country programs. Um, similarly, you know NGOs not only benefit from the global programs, but also get funding through country programs. So I guess that's an interesting point, and I just wanted to make a bit of mention about... Um, oh, firstly, so in terms of managing contractors, you know, our role in the aid program has uh, decreased over the years, and you might remember this from the effectiveness review uh, that showed the significant decrease um, from what I think was maybe a bit of an outlier, 40% back in 2005 to around 20%. Um, so this is more recent data in the last three years or so. You can see an increase in multilateral still, uh, an increase in the NGO uh, aspect of the amount they deliver for the aid program. And commercial suppliers here, very flat in terms of the three years. So we're still holding around that 20% in terms of the amount we deliver. Um, but I guess, you know, when you look at the modes of delivery, you ask the question of the relative effectiveness, and there was a deliberate decision to reduce the reliance on projects or managing contractors and move more to other modes of delivery, which I think was a, a, good, a good move to some extent. Um, and there's also guidance now around the initiative stage, around helping people think about what's the best mode of delivery for this initiative. Um, but I don't know if there is actually... You know any uh, evaluations around what is the relative, relative merits of the different modes of delivery, you know, ex post those activities taking place, um, and are we considering, you know, are we taking advantage uh, correctly of the different strengths that each of the partners brings to delivering the aid program? So that's more of a question. I mean, from our perspective, I guess you know we we think our members do bring a strong sense of value for money given the tendering processes that we comply with. Um, we do also comply with the due diligence requirements, uh, not least because you know, most of our members have to comply with Australian companies' law and 
international laws now. Um, and also I think relationships through the fact that we've been in the region for many years delivering aid and also other private sector operations. So that's more of a question. Um, what major changes have we seen since the effectiveness review to our work? I think the major one is the aid advisory services, which is this new panel that they've set up, which will enable AusAid to selectively tender activities of up to 50 million. Um, so that gives them a much uh, more efficient process to uh, get a, uh, a partner in to deliver significant programs. But I guess all those changes and some of that uh, increasing use of different delivery partners you know, raises in my mind some questions about aid fragmentation and scaling up in the future. And while we get focused on this, this magic number of eight billion or so, how effective are we going to be in rushing towards that figure and how are we going to control the, the increased number of activities that will mean and what's the best mode to bring about that coordination. So I better... That's about it, actually. <laughs> this final one was just putting some bars against what the $8 billion might be spent on in the future. Thank you. Very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'd now I'd like to invite the, the panel to come to the table. Um, we've got about 20 minutes for um, questions and answers. Um, I'll take the, the questions in batches. If I could ask you please to um, identify yourself um, when you ask a question. And um, please, if possible, keep the, the questions or remarks um, short and to the point. Um, that will enable um, more, more questions and, and more discussion. So, um, if I could have one more last question. Okay. Yep. Yes? about the Africa program. Last night, the um, uh, Director General and, uh, made a very big deal about joining the African Development Bank and how this was very important. But I noticed from their graph last night and the one that Angus just showed us now that, in fact, the funding for Middle East and Africa is plateaued or, or actually going down. Is that possible we can get involved in the African Development Bank without large, further large increases? Uh, morning, my name is Alan Children. I'm with Oracle these days. Uh, thanks very much to all the speakers. Uh, really good presentations. My comments or questions really are directed mostly to Stephen and perhaps a bit to Helen. It's understandable, I'm assuming we're amongst friends, uh, people who are interested in a, in a large and effective uh, development uh, program out of Australia. Um, and it's understandable that the day after the budget, we're all talking about a volume. Stephen alluded to it, the quality issue. Um, other people have really just focused on how much money is going where. I think perhaps as a group to be really credible in this debate that we're trying to foster in Australia, we really need to, to be serious about the quality of the aid program, about, about how effective we could be with an even smaller budget. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting we advocate, and I recognise there's a lot of real politic around this, uh, but in the CAPEF there were some pretty uh, interesting numbers. I think if we can up our game on, on testing the credibility of those and get the poor decision makers who now run AusAid who've got to juggle things to make much more informed decisions about where 
where and how aid is most effectively spent. I know it's a, it's a clarion cry effective aid, but let's get really serious. The value for money discussion is only just starting out, Jose. The results discussion only really just started a year ago. Let's, it, let's let us, as the advocates and campaigners for a more effective program, really push that barrel um, much harder, particularly in this, in this, um, this, these days when there's a lot of profile on the aid program and the budget. Thank you. Okay, so we respond to those two. <coughs> Stephen, maybe? Yeah, well, I th actually, just on Africa, I'm surprised by uh, how robust the Africa program is. I think a lot of people thought that once Australia won the UN Security Council seat, <laughs> that the Africa program would uh, go away. But, um, you know, it's at uh, 355 uh, this year, which is the same as the budget last year. But actually, last year's estimated outcome for Africa was 385, right? Despite the asylum seeker diversion. And Africa's got this tendency where actually spend more than we budget if you look back over the last few budgets. And if you look at the projections for 2015, it's still going up. So not what we recommended in the aid review, but Africa still seems to be uh, have a lot of strong support. And on Alwyn's point, I mean, I agree with you, Alwyn. And I would just say, I think I, I more than alluded to the effectiveness issues. I mean, the last part of my presentation was squarely on effectiveness. And I just, because it was a budget presentation. You can't take on all issues at once, so I try to link the uncertainties to the financial dimension. There is a link, because funding uncertainty uh, breeds um, program uncertainty and breeds delay, and breeds uh, short-term contracts, because no one wants to commit. Um, but since you've brought in the discussion, I will just say that if, if you don't know, we are going to run this stakeholder survey this year. So actually, we think, as, along the lines of what Alvin said, that you know, the people in this room have got a lot of expertise about what works with aid and what doesn't work. And sometimes people are afraid to uh, voice those uh, views um, because of uh, possible consequences. And uh, so the discussions tend to happen behind closed doors. So we think having a survey, which will be anonymous, gives us a way to aggregate your views and discuss them with AusAid and with the government uh, in a constructive way. So we're going to run this survey um, in uh, June, July. Uh, we're going to release it after the election, so it's not meant to be an election football, but something after the election, some uh, constructive views, and uh, certainly we'll welcome you know, a lot of uh, discussion around that. So please uh, respond to the survey when you get it. <laughs> That'll teach you. <laughs> um, well, look, I, I'd like to respond to the question as a, a relative newcomer. I'm probably the most recent arrival to the sector in the room. And I think there's a, um, and I think there's no doubt, particularly if there is a change of government, that there's going to be a lot more rhetoric around, you know, understanding the impact of aid and you know what value do we get, and that we that the danger with that is that people then revert to the kind of simplistic linear measures, you know, X number of people immunised, you know, whatever the case may be, and take the nuancing out of the aid um, benefits and so on. And you know, again, I'd say I'm not an expert in this. But I would also offer the reflection that this sector is, uh, is already an incredibly complex sector. And part of um, my perception, I guess, is that we have to build an understanding of the impact in a way that's manageable for you know, the person on the street as well as the person sitting um, in the minister's seat. And often they're both equally challenging in terms of the education process, from what I can glean. I mean, it is. You know, it's ironic that we did, uh, I won't 
well, I was going to make a comment about Kevin Rudd, but I won't because we're being filmed. Um, <laughs> but, um, and, and so somewhere in that effectiveness debate and, and somewhere in this, in this stakeholder survey that's done and, you know, however that's resourced into the future, I think what we have to balance is um, how do we measure that in a way that doesn't become a job in and of itself? And certainly, you know, it's appropriate that a certain amount of money is allocated to evaluation and trying to assess what the impact is and, you know, how we get those measures right. But my worry is that we're a sector that's already very kind of bureaucratic in terms of how things are done, even from our little perspective of the world. And uh, we really need some kind of impact measures that are, I guess, is it possible that we can get some that are universal, that are not just focusing on health outcomes, but are, are focusing on other outcomes around capacity, around sustainability and so on. And, and I, maybe they're there, I don't know. So I'm not doubting what you say, and I think there'll be a political imperative to it, and I guess my view is can we get a kind of, do it in a way that doesn't bog the system down further, or bog the system down, forget about the further. <laughs> Okay, um, the, the lady there. Hi, Benedict White, I'm from Cardinal Emerging Markets. I've got two questions, but I'll um, for anyone that wants to answer them. Firstly, uh, are we, uh, or should we be worried about the um, issue that the aid budget is not all OVA anymore, and that will continue? Because in the past, the aid budget and OVA were more or less the same amount of money in the same thing. And now the aid budget is one thing, and ODA is 
geographically within that country. Because at the end of the day, it's all about activities on the ground with communities or regions. And you get better call, you get more bang for your buck if everything's coordinated better, obviously. But I don't know if I've seen those modalities coming out of that yet. Would anyone on the panel like to comment on the, the issue on multilateral effectiveness and which might be effective multilateral agencies to scale up through? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, UNDP goes up for a small amount, as far as I can tell. And here we've, uh, you know, as I did the multilateral assessment, we haven't noticed a strong link between that assessment and funding decisions. So it's good, I guess, if they're at least trying to make that link from the assessment to the fund decision. So, yeah, it's something to watch out for. Okay, we've got a few more questions. Um, we'll take it the, the back of the room, gentleman with the beard. Thank you. Um, Brendan Allen from the Muscle Institute for Global Health at Melbourne Uni. Um, excellent for Stephen. I was just wondering if you could comment on any of the projections of funding for research uh, in the development program and perhaps how you see that alignment with uh, the effectiveness agenda. Mm. Um, just take one more. There was someone just there, uh, yeah. Uh, hello, I'm Chris Hoy at Aussie. I just had a question for Stephen. Uh, he mentioned his presentation about the impact of the high Australian dollar and how that influenced where Australia ranked in terms of international aid donors. I was just hoping, could you please clarify a little bit further uh, if a reduction in the Australian aid dollar, how that would impact our international ranking? Right. Um, yeah, well, if, uh, you know, if, the do if the currency is appreciated as it has, right, it's gone up by 20%, then the, these international comparisons are done in US dollars. So our aid program you know, is now 20% more in US dollars than it used to be. So yeah, if we lose that 20%, then we'll, um, we'll tumble a bit in the rankings. But yeah, I guess the way there, you know, there are those top five, they're the big five donors, and nothing's going to change that in the foreseeable future. Yeah, then there's the next tier. So we're clearly in that second tier now, which we weren't a few years ago, and it's pretty clear we're going to stay in that second tier, right, with Canada, Netherlands, ourselves, I think Norway. Uh, so we're a second-tier donor at the moment. You know, we're, we think we're at the, at the front of that second tier, and we're certainly the only one in that group, or maybe us in Norway, that are actually putting new money on the table. So, yeah, that's why, that's why this budget was very interesting. There was a feeling... I mean, I don't know if Susan Harris-Strimmer is here, but you know, she wrote about the sector going over a fiscal cliff. Right? And there was this feeling that the aid boom is over right? and uh, there'd be no more scale-up. And, well, it's not over. Right? It's, it survived another year. So you know, maybe our expectations were very negative, but we were definitely uh, surprised on the upside. And it will mean that for another year you will continue to get a lot of visitors to Canberra you know, seeking Australian funding because there isn't a lot of new money uh, out on the table. So... Yeah, the Australian dollar certainly has a role in our exact ranking, but I think in the bigger picture, it's, uh, it's more fundamental than that. And yeah, I'm afraid on research, I just didn't, uh, maybe ACFID looked at research, we just haven't got around to it yet. You know, we have been uh, lobbying to have more research for um, global medical research, but um, where that made it into the budget? I don't know, maybe, does anyone know? Can anyone answer that question on research? Crowdsourcing? <laughs> an item for further research. <laughs> okay. Um, 
Any final round of questions? Um, the, the lady there, please. Uh, I'm Salva from Afghanistan. I'm a student on an Olden scholarship here at Kofor. Uh Now, my question is from the perspective of the recipient countries. Uh, as a recipient country, um, after looking at the slides on the uh, OZ departmental spending, the administration was rising up, and also after the slide which talks about how foreign is the foreign aid, I'm just uh, trying to ask whether we should, as recipients, celebrate the 500 increase. Is it really an, a true increase for us, or it's just a 500 million increase that will be kind of spending on, like my question is, is this 500 million increase really an increase for aid, for aid beneficiaries, uh, the recipients, or it definitely involves the two other aspects that Stephen discussed, which is the administration cost or departmental spending, and as well as the how foreign is it. Thank you. So is 500 million good news for the recipients? <coughs> Well, I, I've given our view, which is that um, you know it's negated by a diversion of funds for domestic asylum seeker issues. Um, I can't comment on um, you know the, the, the proportion of that that will actually go to administrative costs over and above what already exists. But I think on the basis of the slide we saw, from, I think from Stephen, uh, that they're plateauing. I think, aren't they? Well, not this year. After this year. After this year. Yeah. So I think that's a legitimate question. I, I guess it goes to the the, um, the bigger issue uh, of first of all, um, you know, the technicality of whether spending overseas aid on domestic kind of issues here is legitimate, and you know, there's there's obviously that's kind of now in the political realm, if you like. So at least we have a statement from the opposition which says that you know they won't be diverting overseas aid money to deal with asylum seeker issues. Now, the flip side of that is how they deal with asylum seeker issues, so that could be a rather harsh antidote to that uh, issue. Uh, and the second is that I, I do think that, uh, you know, in the context of Australians giving generally, and most of the organisations like ours and World Vision, um, you know, raise funds from the Australian public, uh, and we're very high on the giving index if, in terms of the public donating to help with development issues overseas, um, I think there is an expectation that there is transparency about how that money is used, and certainly there's an expectation on the part of INGOs to demonstrate that proportion of our funding that we use for administrative overheads versus direct programming, uh, and there's an expectation that it would be spent overseas, so I think to that extent, you know, your question raises the kind of issue of how we monitor this as a public yeah, no, well, just to, I mean, I agree with a lot of what Helen said in her comments, and um, I, before I get onto this uh, disagreement, Helen, I want to say, especially the point she made, you know, I think there is a dilemma for NGOs that on the one hand you support the point five, and that is like a powerful bargaining point, powerful lobbying point for you. On the other hand, it requires, you know, these unrealistic aid increases, like one and a half billion dollars in a year, you know, which, which might work in the UK, doesn't seem to work here, so... Um, Look forward to seeing how you uh, resolve that in the coming years, and um, perhaps focusing on the next couple of years is one part of the solution. But on this issue, I have a slightly different uh, view. I mean, yeah, so there's a $500 million increase, $50 million has gone to extra departmental or running costs, 
And yeah, whether that's too much or it's a bit surprising, I think, because it does come on the back of a number of increases, some of which have been accounting. Because what's counted as this is one thing. And whether that's an issue this year, I don't know. It's worth exploring more. Um, but yeah, of course you do need you do need administrative costs to run any aid program. That's just part of running running an aid. Um, but yeah, the 375 is not relevant, right, for the 500 because that that's what I tried to show in that one graph. That, that came last year, so that is going to be spent again this year. But the 500 million is on top of that. Right? So the, you can't say it's you know 500 minus 375. This is 500 million uh, new money, and uh, you know even you know is it. Should we count that as aid, right? As, you know, what I've been saying is, well, it doesn't matter that it's spent in Australia, because a lot of aid is spent in Australia. Like your scholarship uh, was spent in Australia, right? It benefits ANU. So we shouldn't be against aid, you know, just because it's spent in Australia. We should look whether it's effective. And, you know, should we provide any support to asylum seekers? Well, that is part of the development problem. There are a lot of displaced people. So part of development does require dealing with displacement. And uh, we help them in developing countries. That's the point Bob Carr makes. We help them in developing countries. Well, and we count that as aid. So then why shouldn't we... You know, some of them are going to have to come to Australia. And uh, so we help them in Australia. Why shouldn't that count as aid? And I think there's some legitimacy in that argument. It just depends on what we're helping them uh, with. And personally, if we were helping them, if they're able to work, but maybe they still needed some support, transition support, you know, as they do, you know, I'd be very happy with that counting as aid. If it's going to fund the detention network, you know, then I wouldn't be happy. So the government, despite this clarification of the budget, the government's still not clear on what the guidelines are for what is being counted as um, ADA. So I think that's the issue, rather than thinking that this 500 million is not a real increase. I think, um, you know, the bad news for recipient countries came last or early this year when they were told the country program had to find funding for which is an interesting, must be an interesting conversation because it has many governance programs where we're trying to get developing countries to better plan for estimates for their budgets, allocate spending on planned expenditure, not ad hoc expenditure. Um, so it would have been interesting. But, um, you know, I still go back to the $500 million increase. The alternative is what? The decrease. So you're being quite hard. <laughs> anyway. I've got to draw a line at the same. <laughs> Uh, I'll draw the, the proceedings to a close, but anyway, I'd like to thank um, our, our panel for some excellent and insightful um, presentations and helping us to understand what is quite a, a complex and nuanced discussion and debate around both the quantity and the quality of the Australian aid program. And also thank you all for attending here today. Um, just one final announcement is to say 